So we're going to um, do the reading now, if you can get your Bibles ready, from Acts 6. And Rachel J. Plans is going to come up and do that reading for us. And just as she prepares, and if you, as you dig your Bibles out, let's just pray. Lord God, as we hear your word, grant us minds to understand and hearts to be inspired by what we receive from you today. Amen. Morning. Uh, today's reading is Acts chapter 6, verse 1 to 7, and we're reading from the ESV. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Procurus, and Nicanor and Timon, and Parmenas and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch, and they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Good morning. Let me welcome you again to, to Bankery Christian Fellowship Church. My name is Mark, and I'm the pastor in training here, and it's my my privilege, my pleasure to be able to, to serve you and this morning to be able to bring God's word to you. Um, our passage this morning, it shares a, a common theme with much of what we've seen already in Acts. In the past weeks, we have seen the apostles stand firm against violent, sometimes very aggressive opposition that sought to stop them preaching the word. And time and time again, the easiest thing for them to have done would have been to stay silent. But as we've seen, time and time again, emboldened by the Holy Spirit, they refuse. The preaching of the gospel is just too important, so they prioritize it even over their own safety. They continued to preach, and God's church continued to grow. And here in today's passage, the apostles, they face a similar pressure the pressure to stop preaching the gospel. Only this time, the pressure is much more subtle. It's much more insidious. Rather than a full frontal attack, here the opposition to the preaching of the word, it comes in the form of temptation to get distracted doing some other good thing. When, or while violent external opposition um, seems quite foreign to us here in peaceful rural bankery, the temptation to get sidetracked and distracted by some other important good cause is just right on our doorstep. All we need to do is look at the world around us. There are so many problems, so many physical needs that demand our attention. If we're Christians, we, we should, we must care about these problems 
and about the people with these very real and painful problems. We must care about poverty and hunger and debt and abuse and violence and loneliness and depression. These are problems that demand our attention, our care, our compassion. We as Christians and as a church should desire to do something to help. And these problems are not just in the world outside, outside the church. Not one person that I have spoken to since coming to this church is without some practical or physical need. In fact, no person I have ever spoken to in any church is. The needs are huge, and the right desire is to want to help. There are perhaps many, many good things that we could do to help, and these should not be ignored. But one thing that comes loud and clear out of this passage this morning is this. The church cannot get involved in any activity, regardless of how good if the cost is to stop preaching the gospel. Putting the primary task of the church, which is to preach the gospel to one side for any other good thing, is just too high a price to pay. But as we'll also see in this passage, when our priorities are right, we don't have to choose between meeting people's physical needs and meeting their spiritual needs. When the gospel is first, both happen. So our our message comes from Acts chapter 6 verses 1 to 7, and you'll see the title that I've given the message is The Church Needs Fed. In verse 1, there is a dispute over unfair distribution of food support to widows. But as we read, we discover that the problem is actually deeper than that, and so must the solution be. The church needs fed, but not on bread alone. Our passage divides neatly into three parts, and there potentially is a slide to to give you that outline. Um, Part one, the problem. There's division in the church, or if you want something catchier, food fight. There is a food fight going on in verse one. And part two, we see the response in verses two to four, where the apostles' response is to prioritize the word and prayer. They put gospel food first. And then part three, we see the result of that action. Um, And we can look at that result a little bit more closely and see that it it breaks into three things. We see that the church is fed because gospel food leads to gospel action. And we see that the church is united because gospel food leads to gospel unity. And the church is multiplying because gospel food leads to gospel growth. So let's walk through these scenes together. Part one food fight. There was a problem in the church, an internal problem, and it appears that there is a food fight going on, but there's a very particular context to this food fight. Uh, We see it from verse one. It was in those days when the disciples were increasing in number. Not too long ago, the church in Acts was only about 120 people in total. They were given a commission to go into the world into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, and to be Jesus' witnesses. We see in great power the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. God's word was proclaimed clearly in many languages. Many believed and were added to the number of the church, about 3,000 men that day. Shortly after, we hear how the church grew not only in number, but also in unity, 
chapter 2, verse 44, says, all who believed were together and had all things in common. The story moves on in chapter 3, and a lame man who was a societal and religious outcast is healed and brought into this new gospel community. Again, the word was preached clearly. The resurrection of Jesus was clearly proclaimed. And again, many believed and were added to the number, about 5,000 this time. And again, we read of incredible unity in chapter 4, verse 32, which says the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Incredible growth, incredible unity. But then there is the first inkling of problems, of hypocrisy, of self-serving in the church with the story of Ananias and Sapphira that we looked at not long ago. They lied about the extent of their generosity to make themselves look good. But then after their demise, the church experiences yet another surge in growth. This time, more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. His growth alarms the ruling religious men who discussed how to stamp it out. But a savvy politician, Gamaliel, as we saw last week, spoke up and said, if it is of men, it will fail. But if it is of God, you'll not be able to overthrow them. So then, at the end of chapter 5, every day, in both the temple and from house to house, the apostles did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus This devotion to teaching and preaching in both the temple and around the houses leads to growth, both in numbers and in diversity, as it's not just those law-abiding, temple-going Jews hearing the gospel, but everyone in Jerusalem, even those of other cultures, some of whom we are introduced to here in chapter 6. So what exactly is the problem? Well, two groups are arguing with each other. The Hellenists have a complaint against the Hebrews because their widows aren't being cared for as they should be. They are being overlooked in the daily food handout. But how big was this problem? Well, I I think of it like this. I currently have a a chip on my my windscreen. Um, It's a small thing. It's in the periphery of my vision, and I barely even notice it most of the time. It's very easily ignored. But I do know that if I continue to ignore this chip it will grow, and it could potentially shatter my entire windscreen. And I think that's what we've got happening here in in chapter 6. There's a chip in the church, small but deadly if ignored. The problem is one that is seemingly minor. There's no great heresy, no massive moral failure, and the word complaint in verse 1 is often translated as a murmuring, a, a grumbling, or a whisper, something that could easily be ignored, like that chip on my windscreen, but it would spread and grow and potentially shatter the unity of this early church. The Hellenists were were Greek-speaking Jews, Jews who'd lived in the Greek world and had absorbed Greek culture. Many had returned to Jerusalem, heard the preaching of the gospel, believed, and were added to the number of this rapidly growing church. The majority of the early church are still Hebrews, Jews who were natives of Israel, who would have probably spoken Aramaic, the same language as Jesus, and who had been infused through and through with Hebrew culture and practice. It seems that these differences had caused some division and led to an unfortunate oversight. 
The Hebrews, who formed the core of the church, seem to be systematically overlooking the Hellenists in the distribution of food. And while it appears that the Hebrews didn't overlook the Hellenists maliciously or, or maybe even intentionally, their behavior does, I think, expose in them a lack of interest and love for those who are not like them. This is a massive problem for the early church. It threatens the unity and integrity of the church, which was to spread to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the world. And this is a problem that is not unique to them. Uh, it's, It's common to man. It's common to us, isn't it? We like people who are like us. We tend to spend time with people who share things in common with us. We tend to spend time with with people who who look like us, who who, um, talk like us. And we tend to avoid, sometimes unintentionally even, those who are are different and difficult. The food fight in Act 6, I think, exposes a, a deeper heart issue. It exposes a division that could also lead to distraction. And when we see the nature of the problem in Act 6 in this light, we can see why the apostles set the course that they later do. So let's now look at their response in verses 2 to 4. They prioritized the word and prayer. They put gospel food first. I think in verses 2 to 4, the apostles actually show stunning leadership. The fact that they were able to spot such a a low-level complaint, a murmuring between Hellenists and Hebrews in a church of thousands upon thousands shows an incredible level of attentiveness. They were close enough to the people in the church to see what was happening in their day-to-day lives. They knew their church well enough to know when people weren't happy and when injustice was being done. So the apostles noticed the problem and then they take action. And in their response, they show great insight into the true nature and magnitude of this problem. They see the gravity and urgency of it and call an emergency members meeting. We see this at the start of verse two. The whole church is gathered and the apostles lay out their response. And we have the summary of what they decide to do in verses two to four. But in a nutshell, they prioritize gospel food and then they promote gospel community. So the first thing they do is to say quite clearly what the response should not be. They should not stop what they have been doing at the end of chapter five. They should not stop preaching the word. The preaching of the word is the lifeblood of the church. It's what they have been commissioned to do by Christ himself. And we have seen its dramatic effect to bring about this astonishing growth in the church. In putting gospel food first, the apostles show that they understood the real danger of this food fight in the church. They saw its danger in its potential to cause deep church division if it is ignored. But they also see the danger that in dealing with this situation in the wrong way, it could seriously distract them from the essential task of preaching the word. They are in danger of being divided to distraction. So they clearly and straightforwardly put gospel food at the top of the menu, gospel food first. In verse two, they say it would not be right for them to stop preaching in order to serve tables. Not because there's something menial about serving tables, and it's not because it's beneath them. Rather, the calling on them is so important. 
so vital that they cannot risk stopping for anything. Nothing must stand in their way of preaching the gospel. As we've already seen in Acts, no evil thing that they have come up against has stood in their path of preaching the gospel. And now they determine that no competing good thing should distract them from preaching the word either, not even feeding widows. Perhaps this may sound a little heartless, but I think it's just the opposite. This is a decision that is made out of hearts full of compassion. The preaching of the gospel is just too important because the gospel alone gets to the very heart of the problem here and to the very heart of all of our problems, our hearts. We see this same gospel priority in the ministry of Jesus, don't we? Look at what he said about his own mission in Mark chapter 1. After healing Simon's mother-in-law of a, a deadly fever, people started flocking to him, bringing them their sick people with various diseases, and he healed them, one after the other after the other. He could have stayed right there and built a large mission hospital. People would have flocked to him. He could have built a large team to administrate the program, to advertise it, to staff it. It would have been a huge success. But the next morning, Jesus isn't found building a mission hospital. He's found after much searching in a nearby garden, praying. And then he says to his his disciples that the time has come that they need to move on to the next towns. Why? To heal more people? No. This is what he says. He says, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. Filled with compassion, Jesus knows exactly what people's deepest need is, and he prioritizes it. And we see, again, after the feeding of the 5,000 in John 6, a similar kind of mission clarity from Jesus. Crowds scrambled after him for, for more bread. They want what Jesus can give. But Jesus rebukes them for having far too small a vision for what he has to offer. From John 6, 26, we read Jesus say to the crowds, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. And he continues later to identify himself as the bread which truly satisfies, the bread from heaven who comes to give life to the world. And in verse 35, we read the famous words of Jesus, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Jesus' mission is not to give the world perishable things like bread, but the imperishable gift of eternal life. Jesus had healed and he had fed, but the mission of Jesus is so much bigger than temporary health and food. His mission is to give himself, to give eternal life to a world that is spiritually dead in their sin. When we reduce the mission of the church purely into one of alleviating social problems, into one of providing purely bread, we make its mission far, far too small. At the heart of the mission of Jesus and the mission of the church is the preaching of the word, this word that gives life. 
When faced with the problems of the world, we may be tempted to think that the preaching of the gospel is a weak strategy. We could get tempted to set it aside and get busy doing some other good thing instead. The preaching of the word is the power of God in action. The ministry of word and prayer is the ordinary means that God uses to bring about extraordinary change, bringing dead, lifeless sinners like me to life in Christ through the forgiveness of sins and rebirth through the Holy Spirit. Jesus came to preach this life-giving word. He himself is this life-giving word, and he commissioned his disciples to preach it. And here we see the apostles following in his footsteps. In the face of a food crisis, they put gospel food first. So the apostles prioritize the ministry of the word and of prayer, but we clearly see as we read on that they're not just trying to sidestep the practical food issue. They're giving the church the right food to properly tackle it. In verse 3, the apostles, having already prioritized gospel food, now promote gospel community. They task the whole church, every member, with identifying seven qualified people to appoint to the duty of serving tables, seven deacons for the task of feeding the widows, so that the apostles can remain devoted to prayer and preaching of the word. And the apostles set qualifications that are required for this role, qualifications that show us the importance of the task. The seven must be men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. They are to be chosen from among the membership of the church, and every member is tasked with identifying men who fit the requirements. We see clearly here the vital role of the spiritual leaders of the church and how the deacons and the whole membership of the church are integral both for preserving gospel preaching and promoting gospel community. This is a whole church activity. As a, a side note, it's, um, it's quite clear that the church in Act 6 had a mechanism for knowing who was part of their number that they would choose from and, and who was not. Some sort of a list or a member's role. A list of people who were believers, who were part of the gospel community, who had committed themselves to the growth and unity of the church and to the mission of the church. And we've got something similar here at Bankery Christian Fellowship. Recently, me and Lisa had an interview to be added to the members list here. And I wonder, if you're a Christian here today and you call this place your home, have you committed to this place, to these people here in membership? And if not, I wonder, why not? Um, church membership is a brilliant way and a biblical way to support the life of the local church, to commit yourself into the care of this church and to commit yourself to caring for it. If you're not yet a member, I'm sure... One of the elders would be delighted to talk to you about it, although I haven't told them beforehand, but I'm sure they would love to have a chat with you. Uh, we, can, we can summarize the, the response of the apostles to the food fight like this. They put gospel food first, and they promoted gospel community. So let's have a look at the, the result of this. We can, we can look at it in three ways, that the church, number one, is fed, the church is united, and the church grows. 
The apostles, they set the priority to feed the church the Word of God, and the church also gets fed physically. And the fact that the church cared deeply enough for one another to feed their widows is not in spite of the fact that the apostles put gospel food first. It's because gospel food leads to gospel action. When we feed on the Word, when we feed on who Christ is and what He has done for us, it changes us. It causes us to love one another and desire to meet each other's needs, both spiritual and physical. Lack of practical care in the church is not first and foremost an organizational issue. It is a gospel issue. See what John says in 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. He says, by this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Our love and care for one another is rooted in the love that Christ has for us. Our love is rooted in the gospel, but we so easily forget it. So we need to keep coming back to the gospel time and time again. We never outgrow it. We need to constantly preach the gospel to ourselves. In Act 6, gospel food is placed first in the church, and the church is fed spiritually and physically. Next, we see that the church is united. A striking feature emerges in this passage. After the initial division of verse 1, we see unity and togetherness of the church as the apostles put gospel food first. In verse 2, the apostles call a meeting of the whole church. It would have been thousands. Every member is tasked with identifying qualified men to serve in the feeding program. And we see at the start of verse 5 that the whole church gathering responds as one in favor of the apostles' proposal. There is a remarkable unity here instead of what could have been deep and lasting division. And the unity of the church is exemplified in who the church choose as the seven deacons. We noted that the problem was that Hellenists were being treated like outsiders. They were being overlooked in the food handout. But the church corrects that wrong. They appoint seven men, all of whom have Greek names. Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas. These men are all affirmed by both the church as a whole and by the apostles specifically as men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. What better way to emphasize the fact that these Hellenists who may have spoken differently, looked different, and acted different are not outsiders. They are all full members of equal standing in this new gospel community. They demonstrate in this action that the church is a place of wonderful diversity and deep unity. The church is not a common interest club. 
It's not a place that is united because it is full of people who look alike, who sound alike, think alike, have a similar cultural or ethnic background. No, the church should be all over the map on these things. The church's unity, our unity, comes from the fact that we have a common Savior. We share a common gospel. We are united by the fact that each of us were helpless sinners, estranged from God by our own rebellion. But he has come to reconcile us to himself in Christ. Paul speaks of this reconciling gospel in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15 to 18. He says, And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. This is the gospel that unites us, that reconciles us to God and to one another. The apostles put this gospel first, and as a result, gospel, gospel community thrives and gospel unity deepens. Finally, the third result is that the church grows. As we've seen throughout the book of Acts, when the gospel continues to be proclaimed, the church continues to grow. In verse 7, we read, as a result of the apostles' response and the church's actions, the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many priests became obedient to the faith. As a result of putting gospel food first, there is internal growth and unity in the church, and we see that the mission of the church also grows. The word of God increased, and even a great many priests believed and were added to their number. This is the kind of result that could never be brought about by a mere food program. This uh, bread alone would never do this. To grow, the church needs to feed first and foremost on the word, and the apostles in their wisdom knew it. We need to put gospel food first if we're going to have a church that grows like this. A church that grows like the church in Acts 6 is a church that doesn't stop preaching the word, not for anything, not for any evil thing that might stand in our way, and not for any good thing that would distract from the preaching of the gospel. A church that puts gospel food first becomes a church that prizes gospel community. And it's a church that gets truly fed. It is a church that cares about feeding one another. It's a church that is united in gospel unity and a church that grows supernaturally. When we are faced with the pressing problems in the world around us and the temptation to get busy doing some other good thing, the church must, we must put gospel food first because it is by the gospel that we are fed and united and grow. 
A major problem that we saw in Acts 6.1 was lack of love for people who are different. But in response, the gospel is put first. Because the gospel alone transforms people to love those who are not like them. Transforms us to, to love even our enemies. The gospel shows me this is how God loves me. While I was a sinner, someone who loved myself more than God. In fact, when my actions show that I not only overlooked God, but I hated him, while in this state, God died for me. He did it to take the death penalty that my sin fully deserved. He removed this penalty and placed it on himself in the person of Jesus, God the Son. He did it to remove the sin barrier between me and God so that I, a sinner, an enemy of God, could be reconciled to a holy and a perfect God. And God now calls me friend. This is why the apostles put the gospel first way back then. And this is why we, we must put the gospel first here today. In fact, for a Christian, the gospel is, is not only first, it is the beginning middle and end of what it means to be a Christian. I wonder if, if you have ever experienced this reconciling gospel. Have you known the joy of being reconciled to God? Have you known the power to, to be able to love your enemies, not from your own willpower, but from the power of the Holy Spirit? If you have, praise God and keep reminding yourself of the gospel we never outgrow it. If you haven't, and this sounds totally foreign to you, I would love to, to meet with you to, to chat about it more. And I will be in this corner after the service to, to pray or to, to chat with you if, you if you wish to do that. It would be, would be a, a great thing to do.